learned a story this week I thought was great. It goes like this. A man was shoveling snow from his driveway when two boys carrying snow shovels approached him. One young man said, hey, mister, can we shovel your snow? One of the young boys asked the other one, said, it's only $2. Puzzled, the man replied, can't you see that I'm already doing it myself? To which the young man said, sure, that's why we're asking. We get most of our business from people who are halfway through and feel like quitting. <laughs> I was thinking this week, you ever feel like quitting? Ever get halfway through something? Feel like giving up? You're not seeing the results you wanted to see? You're exhausted from being mistreated? You feel hopeless in your situation? You have doubts and questions about the future? You ever feel like quitting? I was reading some statistics. According to research, we're told 42% of pastors contemplating quitting ministry last year. 42%. Same researchers tell us 44% of marriages contemplated divorce last year. 32% of college students quit on their education last year. We're also told last year 336,000 people quit on California last year. 336,000 people just left last year alone. Check this out. It's estimated 11 million people from around the world likely leave their faith every year. 11 million people just walk away from Jesus. Now, the good news is roughly 13 million people choose Jesus around the world every year, but still 11 million people. It's estimated quit on Jesus every year. I believe a congregation our size, there's probably people in here right now who are contemplating quitting. Quitting on their marriage, quitting their role in church, quitting their career. Maybe you're contemplating quitting California. I gotta tell you, we're going into December. I'd wait till after the winter months. <laughs> Congregation our size, there's gotta be people here who are contemplating quitting. If you're not currently contemplating quitting, I would bet that there has been a point in your life where you contemplated quitting something because that's just the human condition. And if there ever was anyone in the world who never thought about quitting, it'd be the Apostle Paul. Don't you think? I mean, if there was one person who walked this earth who was just confident and brazen and just strong enough to just persevere through everything, it would be the Apostle Paul. I mean, look at the second missionary journey. And just look at how that went. I mean, it began way down here in the bottom it began with a disagreement between him and his mentor. Separation of relationship, complete different paths. There comes a time right here in the middle where Paul wanted to go one way and God continued to stop him, not once but twice. Where what Paul wanted to do was contrary to what God wanted him to do and so he just wandered this area here in the middle. 
He finally got the Troas to where he finally understood everything came together of what God had for him to do. He got up to Philippi right up here in the top. He was beaten, imprisoned. From Philippi, he went over to Thessalonica where he got kicked out of town, went over to Berea where he was kicked out of town, went over to Athens where he was kicked out of town, not kicked out of town, but he was treated horribly. He was belittled. And after all of that, Paul continues on to Corinth. And we just think, man, what is it? I mean, how does Paul continue to do this? Let me share with you a passage where Paul described his state of mind when he went into Corinth. Look at what he said, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look how Paul describes his state of mind. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's Paul describing his state of mind when he came into Corinth. After all of that struggle, after all of that pain, he used that term weakness, a word describing a lack of strength, someone who's incapacitated with worry. Paul's saying he, he was in fear outward signs of it. He was straight up afraid of what was going to happen to him when he went into Corinth. Paul says, I was trembling, much trembling, visibly shaking, not just in his heart, but outward condition of his life. Man, all of a sudden, Paul, the super Christian, the greatest Christian of his era, and maybe any era, we're used to him just getting stoned, dragged out for dead, walking back into town. He was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi and sang songs. He was kicked out of Thessalonica, went into Berea, kicked out of Berea, went into Athens, belittled in Athens, walked into Corinth. And this is his state of mind. I was with you in weakness, fear, in much trembling. My message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. And we read that, we're like, what happened to Paul? I mean, who could blame him? He had a rough trip. Every city he went into was difficult and trembling, and now he's going into Corinth. Corinth was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was estimated to have 200,000 people in it, 20 times larger than the city of Athens. Corinth had two harbors with a two and a half mile railroad of rolling logs where a ship could come into this harbor and roll two and a half miles, be pulled along and enter into the neighboring harbor. I mean, this was a city of wealth. I mean, people came to this city to prosper, build business, to live the Roman dream. It was also a city known for debauchery and immorality. It wasn't just a booming economic town. 
It was a booming town of sin. And in fact, for 500 years, the term to Corinthianize was understood through the region to describe sexual immorality. Like they coined a phrase. Every night, every night it said a thousand temple prostitutes would descend on the streets of Corinth every single night. So no one could blame Paul. Near the end of his trip, running into brick walls everywhere he went, and to be honest, running through brick walls everywhere he went. And now he's coming into Corinth, describing himself. Man, I was afraid. I was timid. I was shaking. Man, I'm done. What happened to Paul? And the real question, what does God do with him now? How would God respond to the Apostle Paul in that state of mind I want to ask you if you've ever felt like quitting. If you've ever looked down the road and just felt like giving up on your marriage, on your faith, I want to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 18. We're going to see three things that God did for Paul. And then one result that I think is too still available for us today. Join me, Acts chapter 18. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 18. Starting in verse 1. Acts 18, starting in verse 1. Here's how the story goes. It says, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Let's hit pause for a minute. First thing I see, we already know Paul's coming into Corinth. Filled with weakness, a lack of strength, fear, trembling. First thing we see when he goes into, court, uh, into Corinth, first thing God provides, a great team. Remember, Paul's traveling alone right now, right? He's by himself. He goes into Corinth. It's this huge city of commerce. Everyone's loaded. Everyone's, ex everyone's got money. It's a cesspool of immorality. Paul's overwhelmed. First thing that happens, he finds Aquila and Priscilla. Because of a period of anti-Semitism in Rome, Jews fled Rome. And Priscilla and Aquila landed in Corinth. Priscilla, most believe Priscilla, Priscilla was... Uh, from a well-known and prestigious family in Rome. She must have been an extraordinary woman because half the time that her and her husband are mentioned, Priscilla's name is first. This must have been an extraordinary lady. 
They became dear friends of Paul, partners in his ministry, leaders in the church of Corinth. Paul would later say that they sacrificed their lives for him. Paul goes into Corinth feeling weak, fearful, shaking. First thing God does is just supply him with a great team, Priscilla and Aquila. They happen to be of the same trade. They come in as business partners together. And you, I want you to see, because in the English it's not so clear, but in verse 4 you begin to see a coming of life for Paul. That term and, that first word, verse 4, and, it's called a logical connector. It connects what happens in this verse with what was stated right before it. In other words, it was his relationship with Aquila and Priscilla that jettisoned him forward, jettisoned him forward in this. And as a result of that relationship, the Greek says, Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Man, it's because of his partnership with Priscilla and Aquila, Paul starts getting back to work in the synagogues on Saturdays, reasoning, interacting, doing that hard work. But God's not done building his team. Look what happens. Verse 5. Big biblical but right there. But God's not done. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. So Paul goes into Corinth alone, feeling fearful, timid, weak, shaking. God brings a great team. He gives them Priscilla and Aquila. And he also brings Silas and Timothy back. You remember them. Silas was that elder, he was a deacon, he was a powerful teacher. Timothy was the young protege, a little mini Paul. When Paul was chased out of Berea, Timothy and Silas stayed in Berea to make sure the church was rooted and formed. They stayed in that region of Macedonia to make sure those new Christians were solid in their faith that the church was gifted and equipped with leaders so they could move forward in power and purity. Now Paul's in Corinth, fearful, trembling, weakened. God gives him Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, and Timothy come back. And I want to share with you, they came back with some pretty phenomenal gifts. Look at how Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians it says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all your distress and affliction, we're comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Silas and Timothy, come back to Paul. Paul, I know Macedonia was hard. I know you got beaten up and, and imprisoned in Philippi, kicked out of all these towns. Paul, the church is thriving. Paul, it was worth it. It's happening. The church is going. They're faithful and they're standing firm in the goodness of God in the midst of it. They came back with great news. As Paul's in Corinth looking at this cosmopolitan of greed and destruction, he gets a message from his friends. Man, what you did back there, it worked. 
Not only that, we have a hint that they came with more than just good news. Look at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11. When I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone, for when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. Most people believe that Silas and Timothy brought financial support as well. I mean, Paul was in Corinth and he was working and trying to minister trying to reason, trying to convince Silas and Timothy come back from Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and that region. They come with great news. Paul, it's working. They're doing fantastic. You'd be so proud. Oh, and hey, they took up a collection. Here you go. Give you a little support. Paul, they love you. They're grateful for you. Everything you endured on their behalf. Here, Paul. And then I want you to look. Look at verse 5. When Silas Timothy came down from Macedonia, look at this. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Paul comes into Corinth. He's weak, fearful, shaking. He meets Priscilla and Quilla. They set a little business or business partners together. All of a sudden, Paul starts reasoning in the synagogue. Silas and Timothy come back, give them a financial gift, give them great news. Paul, I know all of that stuff hurt. All that stuff was a struggle, but it's working. They're faithful, man. They're so excited about what Jesus is doing. And all of a sudden, we start seeing Paul coming back to life. Paul began devoting himself completely to the ministry of the word. A term devoting, a term means that Paul began seizing every moment. He was fully focusing himself to the work of the gospel in that city. Man, when Timothy and Silas came back, man, that just lit Paul up. As we're reading through it, it's so easy to miss. We see Paul just being rejuvenated in this, devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying. That term means to declare something strongly, to assert a truth powerfully. Man, we start seeing Paul come back to life. And just in time, too, look at verse 6. Just when you think everything's going great, big biblical butt right there. But when they resisted and blasphemed, the Jewish leaders, when they resisted and blasphemed and rejected the gospel, Paul shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Read out like, there you go, Paul. That's the Paul we're used to, right? He goes in, he's preaching, he's devoting himself. These people reject it. Paul said, I'm out. That phrase, he shook his garments out. It's an act of judgment that says they had their chance and now their chance is gone. Hey, when Jesus comes back and starts judging sin, when he separates sheep from goats, your judgment's on your head. I came here. I devoted myself to you. And you rejected it. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. Some people read that like, oh gosh, Brian, that, that seems like a little bit of an overreaction. Not according to Jesus. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 10. 
He was sending his disciples out. He said, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. All right, you had your chance. Truly, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. I mean, Paul goes into Corinth, weak, fearful, shaking. God brings people in his life, Priscilla and Aquila. He brings Silas and Timothy back with great news and some financial assistance to take some of the pressure off. And Paul is back in business. We see him coming back to life. But God's still not done. Verse 7, then. The Greek word like, man, we're still not done with what God's doing. Man, then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. God brings another guy. This guy, Titius, I mean, he was more than likely a wealthy man with a house large enough to house Paul's new operation in his ministry now that the synagogue isn't going to happen. It's right next door. Verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue. I mean, the leader of the synagogue. He believed in the Lord with all his household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. All of a sudden, Paul was coming into Corinth. He was weakened. Man, I have no strength. I have no power. Like, I'm done. I'm fearful. What am I going to be able to do in this huge cosmopolitan of a town? Shaking. Even Paul, I'm tired of getting beat. Chased out of town. My life threatened. Called names. If I'm ever going to hear it from anywhere, it's going to be Corinth. That's what Paul goes in thinking. But God brings a great team. God surrounds Paul with great people that bring him back to life, encourage and empower him and push him forward. Let me do a question this week. Who's your team? Ever thought of that? Who's your team when you feel like quitting? Who's your team? Those people God has brought around you to encourage you, invest in you, empower you, push you to continue to move forward in faithfulness. Who's your team? Some of you might be here and thinking, Brian, I don't have a team. This is why I want to encourage you. Man, let us be your team. One of our main goals as a church, we want everyone to be connected, to belong to a group. It's not just some metric that we want. These are, we want to surround you with a team of people. Man, if the Apostle Paul can get discouraged, if he can feel weakened, if he can have a time of struggle, that's bad news for us. Who's your team? We are, we're starting new small groups. We're starting new Sunday groups. We have men's and women's Bible study. We have so many opportunities. If you're like, Brian, I need a team. 
Talk to the people at the information center. Fill out a comment card in the seat back in front of you. Just put your name and information. Just say, you need a team. We'll get back to you this week. Help you find a spot. First thing I see that God did in Paul's life at that moment where he was struggling, where he was fearful, felt weak and unable to continue, first thing God gave him was a team. But Paul's not, or God's not done. Second thing I see, God gave him as a divine promise. After Paul, you can just feel him coming back to life from verse 1 all the way through verse 8. Look what happens in verse 9 then. After that great team, after Paul kind of comes back to life, the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Stop fearing. Paul, be done. It's not, hey, Paul, there might be a time in the future to where you might be afraid. Remember this, don't do that. No, Paul, okay, now can we be done? I gave you a great team. Can we be done now? Stop being afraid. You're in a great church. You're surrounded by fantastic people. You're no longer alone. Stop being afraid. Look at this next direction. Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul, come on, get going. Get back to it. And now here's this divine promise, verse 10. For I am with you. Paul, do you need anything else? Paul, I'm with you. I did a little phrase search in my Bible this week. That phrase, I am with you. It's one of the most numerous promises of God. You know that? Man, we, we want God to bless. We want God to heal. The most numerous promise of God that he has made to people throughout Scripture is his presence. I'm with you. Man, that's been something that God's just been building in my life this year. Man, so often I wish that I would have answers for you. So often I wish that I could just make pain go away. So often I wish that I would have perfect wisdom and direction and I don't have all that. But I was recognizing at a time where I'm like, I don't feel like I have anything to offer you. Here's one thing I can offer you. I will be with you. I'll walk with you in the midst of your marital struggle. I'll walk with you struggling with your children. I'll walk with you as we live in kooky California. Man, let's do it. In the midst where Paul is timid and weakened and afraid, first thing God did is surround him with people. Second thing he did, second thing. Hey, Paul, I'm with you. Same thing he said to Abraham. Abraham, pack up and leave. Go someplace I'll tell you about later. Don't worry, I'm with you. Hey, Jacob, I'm with you. Hey, Joshua, I know that you now are burdened with all the people of Israel to be prepared to go into the promised land. 
I know you have battles before you. Joshua, don't worry. You know why? I'm with you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, prophets of doom, be bold. God says, I'm with you. Disciples, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, while you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you. And when he finished that directive, remember what he says? And lo, I am with you, even to the ends of the age. The Apostle Paul, Paul, stop being afraid. I know you're in kooky Corinth. Relax. I'm with you. King David. God shared that with King David multiple times. David, relax. I'm with you. I wonder if those messages are what enabled King David to pen one of this, one of the most famous verses in Scripture. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? You're with me. I wonder if this was the moment that empowered Paul to give this famous verse, Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He continues, he says this, in the peace of God. Be anxious for nothing, relax. Trust God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, paraphrase. Jesus is with you. What a powerful promise. And that led me this week to ask just myself in my own heart, I mean, where do I need to remember that? As we go into these kooky political seasons. Man, Brian, I'm with you. When I navigate trying to support my children, 24, 24 year old adult men who are going on to get their doctorate, and a 12 year old son who's trying to navigate junior high, where I feel completely incapable of being all things to all people, just to my four boys, I hear God saying, relax, Brian, I'm with you. A church in Kooky, California. Man, God is doing so much stuff. But so Satan. Man, it is a busy period in our church. And it gets overwhelming. God says, Relax. Brian, I'm with you. Where do you need to receive that? A divine promise that God has made to more than just Paul. One of the most repeated phrases in Scripture, I am with you. Where do you need to receive that this week? God's still not done. Paul goes into Corinth feeling weak, timid, afraid, shaking, 
not feeling like Paul, Paul, God gives him a great team and he starts coming back to life. After Paul starts coming back to life, Jesus comes back and says, yo, that's it. We're done. Stop being afraid. Let's go. I got you. Look what he says. I'm with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. I have many people in this city. Paul, I know what you're afraid of. Relax. I got you. In this city, if I was Paul, I'm never leaving Corinth. After that promise, he didn't for a year and a half. I'm safe right here. Great. I'm buying a house. I'm not moving. Man, Paul's tired. Paul, stop being afraid. Right here, I got you. Third thing, God gives a great team, a divine promise. Number three, a powerful judgment. Look what happens. Verse 12, just when you think everything's going great, again, huge biblical butt right there. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, which with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Gallio was this senator for the region. At this time, it's more likely new, coming in for a two-year term. You do well as a senator in Corinth. Man, your future is made. You do poorly in the city of Corinth. Your future is gone. The Jews decided to take this opportunity to pressure Gallio. Hey, you don't want to mess with us, Gallio. We'll light this city on fire. So they come and they want to make Christianity illegal. They see this as a perfect opportunity in the region. They came, verse 13, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to law. Hey, Caesar needs to worry about Paul. Really? Verse 14. Man, you got to think Paul's got to be right in that system. Like, oh my gosh, here we go again, right? Isn't that how it always is? Philippi, people go up and make weird accusations, beaten and imprisoned. Thessalonica, people go and make weird accusations, chased out of town. Berea, chased out of town. Athens gets belittled, has to go to the Supreme Court. Paul's going to be like, oh my gosh, here we go again. Man, God, I thought you had me. I wonder if Paul had those moments. But look what happens. Just when you and I, and more than likely the Apostle Paul is thinking, all right, we know how this goes. Verse 14, big biblical butt right there. If you circle those, circle that one, that's huge. But when Paul's about to open his mouth, Paul's like, all right, here we go. Got to defend myself again. Just when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. I mean, Paul, this has happened numerous times before. Fresh off the promise of God. Paul, I got you. No one's going to come against you in this town. 
gets called up before the new senator. Paul's about to open his mouth, defends himself, doesn't even have to. God shows right up, uses Gallio in this powerful judgment. Says, nope, I'm not getting involved in this. You guys are just jealous. Just in case you feel sorry for these Jewish leaders, look at what they did in verse 17. When Gallio said, no, 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 you handle your matters yourself. Look at what he says, verse 17. And they all took hold of Sophonies, the leader of the synagogue, the new one, because remember, Crispus became a believer and moved next door. They took hold of Sophonies, the leader of the synagogue, began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Man, what a bunch of scumbags, all of them. But God still used them to complete his purpose. As Paul entered into Corinth, he was in an all-time low, shaking, fearful, weakened, struggling. God gives him a great team. A divine promise follows it up with a, divine, with a powerful judgment from a kooky culture. I want you to look at what that results in. Look at verse 18. Paul then, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. And Centuria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. We'll come back to that. They came to Ephesus as he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And when Paul went into Corinth, he was weakened. He was fearful. He was shaking. When he left Corinth, he was empowered and ready for ministry again. Now, what's that thing with this whole thing about the vow? The Bible doesn't say. But here's what many people believe. Around the time of Corinth, where Paul was feeling timid, weakened, worried, he made a vow to the Lord. God, I need you. And in new ways, Jews would have this thing called a Nazarite vow. You swear off alcohol, you don't cut your hair, you don't cut your beard. You wear certain clothes. Man, it's just need God use me, set me apart, make me. I'm going into. I'm charging hell with a squirt gun. God, you need to back me up. Other people think that maybe after he got that divine promise that that Paul made this vow before the Lord, God, all right, I'm with you. I'm done being afraid, and I, he made this vow. I'm not going to cut my hair until I'm finished. But when whatever what it was. When the vow was over, when the terms of the vow was done, he cut his hair. In the terms of the vow, you bring it back. You give it to God with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, recognizing all the great things that God did. Paul went into Corinth, weakened, 
trembling, timid, fearful. Paul came out of Corinth thankful and ready for ministry. Here's my question for you then. Are you close to quitting? Where are you trembling? Weakened. Fearful. At your wit's end. Ready to be done. I ask because God's given you a great team. Man, CVCC, you're not the biggest boat in town, but I got to tell you, you are the most loving one that I've ever experienced. If you're in here, at your wit's end, maybe it's time to allow God to surround you with great people. The Apostle Paul says it's by speaking the truth in love and agape, that committed communal relationship where you have these trusting relationships where you allow people to speak into you and they allow you to speak into them. Maybe it's time for you to open up your heart. Allow God to put great people around you. One of the best things God's ever given me in this town is great people around me. Maybe you need to remember the divine promise that God is with you. He will never forsake you. Wherever you feel alone and abandoned, God has not abandoned you. Maybe you need to trust in God's powerful judgment. He's already declared the most powerful judgment for you yet. He has declared you righteous if you have accepted the grace and mercy of Christ. He has declared you righteous. He has empowered you with his spirit to make you an emissary of his gospel message. To make you a practitioner of restoration, encouragement, empowerment, of communion, bringing people back to God. And God's already done this great work in you. Maybe it's time. Stop being afraid. No more timidity. No more holding back. Maybe it's time to have confidence in what God has called you to and will complete in you and through you. That's why I love communion. That we practice it every month as a reminder of what God has committed to us and what we have committed to God. It's the bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus, his commitment to you. He is so committed to you that he left heaven to take on the form of his own creation to die on a cross for you. The cup, symbolic of the finished work 
the completed work of Christ that's declared you righteous of all of your sins, cleansed from all of the judgment of God that you were earned on your life. Jesus paid all that. And it's because of this blood that you're empowered with the power of God to be a reflection of his glory in a dark and gloomy world. And again, I just want to remind you, this is not the kookiest time in history. I know it may be the kookiest time in our history. Man, God has worked in kookier times than ours and has done amazing things through his church. If he's done it back then, why not today? Where do you need to stop being afraid? And be thankful for what God has done and will do in you. In just a moment after I pray, ushers and deacons will excuse you from your seats. If you're a believer of Christ, you've accepted the mercy of Jesus on your life, come and take the elements. But can I encourage you, when you take the elements of Christ, leave your fears here. Leave your trembling here. Leave your weakness here. After all, the Apostle Paul reminded us this. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim a term. It's bold. It's confident. You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And come bring your fear. Bring your worry. Lay it at the table. And take the elements of communion as a reminder of God's commitment to you and our commitment to him. Let's pray. Jesus, the church, we're here. God, many of us, because we believe in your power. God, we believe that you have the power to save. God, you saved us. You've declared us righteous. You've taken our brokenness and restored us and renewed us in communion with you and empowered us for even greater things than we can ask or even imagine. And God, we're reminded that even the great apostle Paul hit moments of struggle. So God, I pray for people in here right now who are struggling, who are weakened, who feel powerless to endure the path that you've allowed them to be in. People who look down the future and have fear, who are shaking in their present position. God, I pray through the power of your spirit, God, you'd give them encouragement, a peace that's beyond human comprehension. God, surround them with your people that they would gain strength and encouragement to be faithful to you. God, remind them of your promise to never leave us or forsake us. God, and help them to remember the ultimate judgment you've made on their behalf. God, you have all authority. There is no one above you. God, you have already already declared as victorious in your eyes. We are protected and nothing happens to us outside of your okay. God, give us faith. 
And God, for people here who are at the spot of breaking, who do not know you, people who are ready to quit on their life in some aspect of their present condition. God, they feel hopeless and powerless because they don't know you. God, open their eyes, allow them to see you as I do. God, that they might hear your words of peace and compassion, your promise of salvation, renewal and restoration. God, give them humility to just accept your forgiveness. Give them boldness as they proclaim and repent their failures to you. And Jesus, may you hear them and give them what you've promised, a peace that's beyond human comprehension, a joy that's overflowing. May you give them your spirit that will lead them and direct them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. God, speak to us in this moment that we might leave here changed and empowered to be a reflection of your glory in a new and vibrant way, even this week. We pray everything in Jesus' name.